This is episode 24 of the Walk Magazine podcast. Hi, I'm Cindy Lehman, the host of the podcast. This episode, featuring Dave McGovern, is the first in a series of Where Are They Now interviews of people who were in Walk Magazine. Many of you might remember that Dave wrote the ever-popular Coach's Corner column in every issue of Walk. Because I've known Dave for so long, I completely forgot to introduce him in this podcast. Briefly, Dave is a walking coach, competitive race walker, and the author of several race walking books. His walking accomplishments include competing on 15 USATF national teams and qualifying for nine Olympic race walking trials. He and his wife, Loretta, who is also a competitive race walker, have four children, and Dave is helping with their virtual schooling during this pandemic, so uh, he's very, very busy. You can check out his full background on his website. Following the interview with Dave, my friend Deb and I make several recommendations for walking books, and we talk about Dave's new book. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dave McGovern. Hi Dave, how are you today? I'm well, as well as can be expected under the circumstances with COVID and four kids in the house. But as far as, uh, you know, that, doing pretty well. How about you? Well, I'm doing pretty well, too. But since we're empty nesters, I'm home alone all day, which is the exact opposite of you. <laughs> well, yeah, my, my mother is in the same situation. And, and some days I wonder whether she's got it better off or I have it better off, you know, locked up with four kids or locked up alone. I'm not sure. <laughs> I would love to I would love to be locked up alone for a day or two and certainly when yeah, I just finished writing my book I, if I could have had a month locked up alone uh, that's about how long it took me to for, write my first two books it took me 12 years to write this one <laughs> because I've got these kids so. I understand that I really understand that um one of the things I wanted to talk to you about because of COVID, you are a coach and, you co- and you've been coaching for how many years? Uh, officially as a business, 1991. So getting okay. close to 30 years. Wow. Quite a while. I didn't realize it had been quite that long. Yeah. But, but you have all these clients that you've been coaching for years and now you have a pandemic and there are no races. So how are you... How, what are you teaching them to do or how is your training for those people changing? The motivation has changed, but the, you know, I've got several that are, that are training for virtual races and some people have a hard time getting up for that. So I try to make sure that I'm, you know, a little bit more hands-on keeping them motivated. Um, and then, you know, I'm always into long-term goals and I'm hoping, you know, in the spring, in the summer that they'll be training for the national masters again. They'll be training for the world veterans games again. It's just getting them through this fall and getting them through the winter. Um, it's uh, trying to do some different things, uh, different kinds of workouts instead of just base training, doing maybe a little bit more speed work and a little bit more time trials just to keep things more interesting. And then there are these virtual races and, you know, if I can get them to do a few of those, nobody's terribly excited about it, but it's enough to keep them training through the fall. 
Um, in my own experience, the only virtual races I got excited about were ones that had some unique shirt or medal. <laughs> there are some neat medals out right now, so yeah. that is something something to look forward to. When you have your clients doing speed work, what type of speed training are you having them do? Well, it depends on whether they can get on a track or not. Some some tracks are closed, so it's more uh, fartlek work. Um, you know, the classic definition of fartlek. And, uh, um, I, I always have to say this at clinics. Uh, Jeff Salvage and Tim Seaman have have great workouts. I mean, they're they're, they're fantastic workouts, but I would call it a um, an interval workout with a moving recovery. They call that a fartlek. Whereas the classic definition of fartlek is um, a randomness, you know, just kind of uh, um, shifting gears, you know, going fast, going slow, um, unstructured. So I just, I need to make that distinction. But um, doing that type of training rather than being on a track doing 100, 200, 300 meter intervals, um, doing not even timed, you know, just go for about 30 seconds and then go for, you know, a minute, minute and a half breaks. Um, maybe a little bit more hill training. I mean, I, I've always, in my career, I've always used hill training a lot. Um, I don't always have a, phase, a, a hill training phase in my athletes' workouts, but now I'm doing more of that, you know, having them do more hill training to make things interesting. Um, some people are, myself included, are restricted to the treadmill. And actually, I've, I've got my wife now doing fartlets on the treadmill. Uh, and it might be a little bit more structured where it's going to be, you know, I'll do it um, usually about two minutes on. And then when I feel good again, <laughs> when I feel ready again, <laughs> I'll jack it up again. She likes the structure, so I've got her doing you know, uh, two minutes on, two minutes off, you know, warm up, two minutes on, two minutes off, cool down. That's about the only way I can I can train on a treadmill. I get bored too quickly otherwise. If I'm just going long distance, I have to be watching a really good TV show or I need to do intervals because otherwise I can't handle it. I, You know, I really like um, my gym, which I can't go to anymore. My gym has... Um, the treadmill's hooked up to the internet. So I watch YouTube videos. I'll watch the, you know, the Olympics or World Cup, uh, World Championships videos. And that's, you know, you, watch, you can watch a 50K for four hours. So um, to do a measly two-hour workout, you, know, you don't even get to watch the whole 50K. So that keeps me going. Well, and it would almost, almost be like you're in the race with them. It really is. Um, and I've always been um, big on visualization. So I've always imagined, you know, I pick somebody in the race and I kind of put my head on their body, you know, put my face on their body while I'm watching the video in my head. But if I can actually watch them walking, um, I can mimic technique. Uh, you know, to me, it's just, it's not just entertainment. It's also, um, there's that technique uh, element to it as well. You know, watching somebody with good technique. I mean, there, there are some good walkers that have bad technique, <laughs> some very fast walkers that have bad technique. But it's, you know, it's interesting to be able to, to, to see the differences and see how, you know, like a Jefferson Perez can have really, really perfect technique. And I won't mention names, but there, you know, there are some fairly good walkers that are maybe not, you know, the, the most efficient, but you know, they're economical in terms of physiology and they're strong and they're putting in 150 miles a week. They can do well, but, you know, they might not have the best technique out there. And anyway, trying to pick out what those differences are and maybe compare to, you know, what my issues are today. You know, whereas my technique 20 years ago might've been a little bit better. Uh, there's still some things now that I need to work on. Well, since you mentioned Olympic race walking, this would be a great segue into your Olympic race walking. Olympic-ish, <laughs> almost. Oh. Olympic. <laughs> so you've qualified for the Olympic trials how many times? Nine. 
and I had the record at eight. There, there have been no other. There was a hammer thrower that had seven, had gone to a seven Olympic trial. He made five Olympic teams, so you know, he had a reason to keep going back. Um, <laughs> but I, when I was at seven, I figured I was pretty well retired. But then, as the trials were coming up in 2016. Um, I wanted to be the only track and field athlete to make eight. I don't really know why I went for nine. Um, <laughs> other than <laughs> as it started getting closer, it, it, it you know, it, it, it was something to get me going again. Um, but now that I have nine, 10 sounds very interesting. You know, nine, nine doesn't really mean anything. 10 would be just, you know, a, a really round, well, I guess I wouldn't say it's a round figure, but it's an even number rather than an odd number. I don't, I don't know, though. I mean, I, I, uh, COVID has really, really hurt my training a lot. You know, just schooling the kids all day and, you know, trying to keep the house, <laughs> the household going and not being able to go outside and not being, uh, being able to go to the gym. I mean, uh, things have gotten bad. But if we get a vaccine soon, if I can get out training again, uh, I'd like to start thinking about 2024 at some point. But, you know, I've got three years, three and a half years to worry about it. Yeah, that would that would be really interesting doing it a tenth time. It would, <laughs> and I've, I, I'm well rested right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've well, really, I really, I, I, I had a, a layoff in 1991 with hernia surgery. I had a broken leg in 1984. I had a hernia surgery in '91, and that's about it. Um, other than minor injuries, I, I just I have never taken any time off, and you know, 40 years of, of competing. So it's going to be interesting to see how I can come back after, you know, the most I'm doing now is maybe four or five days a week of, you know, five to eight K easy on the treadmill. I've never, I've never had a layoff like that. So it'll be interesting to see how a 55 year old or at that point, a 58, 59 year old can come back after a long layoff. So we'll see. So do you have, a set mileage where if you do this number of miles or this many kilometers, you know that you're fit. The reason I ask is the first time I ever did eight miles, I thought I was going to die. And then Uh you back off and then you come, then you do eight again, then you go up to 10 and you come back down. And the the third time I did eight miles, I thought, wow, this is pretty easy. So in the back of my mind, eight miles is, is where I know I'm fit. Eight, eight is kind of my number for 5K. If, if somebody's training for a 5K, a lot of the schedules I write, that's the long day. Um, getting, you know, to a 10K, it's more, you know, getting up to 10 or 12. Not not to finish it. I mean, if you're seriously trying to do a race. I mean, if, if I've got somebody doing a half marathon, that's their first half marathon, if you can get through 10 miles, you're going to get through that half marathon. But if you're seriously training for it, you know, then, then you're looking at, you know, maybe 15 miles for the long day. Um, I think my, I did my best at 20K when I was doing about 85 miles a week. This is when I was a serious athlete. Um, I never took 50K seriously, but um, I, if I'm not doing 50 miles a week, I don't really feel comfortable, you know, attempting a 50K, you know, maybe 45. And that's these days. That's, that's as an old, you know, broken down, you know, if I were serious about training, uh, you know, I'd probably be uh, hard to say. I mean, at least at that 85 mile level, to be serious about it, but I, those days are really long gone, but if I can't do 45 or 50 a week, it, 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 it's hard for me to imagine even mentally getting through a 50, let alone physically. I can't imagine it anyway. <laughs> yeah. And then the long, you know, the, 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 the mental part of it, 
you know, I, I think I can do a pretty good 50K on a long day of 30K, eight, 18 miles, but really to be both mentally and physically ready, I like to go about 35K. Um, and, and if the opportunity is there, I like to jump into a marathon now and again um, on, the way, you know, on the way to a 50K. Uh, do you wear a mask when you're walking outside? Uh, when I was walking outside, I did. And it was really irritating when, you know, people would, you know, come by on bikes or whatever, not wearing a mask. And finally got to the point where I was uncomfortable. Now it's just logistically, I, you know, I've got the kids all day. My wife is working again, so um, I can't get outside. But if I did, uh, I'm, not sh I'm not sure um, if I'd be comfortable doing it because too many people still aren't wearing masks. And I'm really only comfortable. My, my, I've got, uh, maybe we'll talk about it, but my son has mitochondrial disease and I, I can't bring, I can't bring COVID home because he probably won't survive it. So. So as long well, as you brought up your son, why don't we talk about that right now? Well, he's, uh, he's 11 now, uh, two years ago. Uh, well, if you go back to when he was four or five years old, he just wasn't really growing. I mean, it didn't notice. I mean, he's an <laughs> adorable kid, but, um, on his own, he looked completely normal. He acted completely normal, but compared to the other kids his age, he was really short. Um, and then he just wasn't really growing. Uh, that was the first sign when I'm going to say about three years ago, all of a sudden he just started looking, everyone was saying he looked sleepy, is he getting enough sleep. His eyelids just were really, really drooping. And you know, as it turns out, that's one of the first signs of um, certainly the, the form of mitochondrial disease he has, his current stare syndrome. It affects care. Uh, Mito in general affects every muscle, every organ in the body, but um, the heart, the brain, the spinal cord, the eyes, the ears uh, are, are first affected. And, and in his case, well, it was growth as well, but um, his eyelids were drooping. So he had, he had eye surgery to, to kind of hold his eyelids open. Um, and it, it's a kind of a progression from there. Any, any, <clears throat> any organ, you know, the mitochondria as a coach, I mean, I know that's where your energy uh, comes from, but the, um, in mitochondrial disease, the, um, there, there's a, a, a chunk missing. And in his case, there's a very large chunk of uh, his mitochondria missing. Um, the, DNA, the mitochondrial DNA is missing. And in about two-thirds of his cells are affected. So about two-thirds of his cells just aren't functioning. They're not producing energy. Um, and it's a progressive disease. And over time, you know, it, it, it could get bad. Um, you know, he's getting around pretty well now. He's doing well in school. But you know, he might need a wheelchair or he might, who knows. I mean, he already has a pacemaker about three months ago. He had heart surgery to get a pacemaker put in. So it's going to be a rough road, but that's where we are. And this also affects his ability to fight off any cold virus, anything. Sure. sure. Well, to fight it off, but the main thing is how it affects him. Any sickness, if he gets a cold, if he gets the flu, um, it, 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 will speed the progression. So he'll suddenly, you know, he'll be tired. It'll take a long time to recover from that one illness, but it also will speed the progression of anything else that goes on. Um, you know, he was sick, well, who knows what happens, but um, any of the other symptoms that we can expect coming over time will be, will come faster uh, if he does get sick. And something like COVID, I mean, it could, you know, be even more catastrophic than that. Oh. And when you have three other kids, and kids tend to be petri dishes, right? That can so be very stressful. Yeah, so we're nobody's nobody's going anywhere. We're pretty much in the house twenty twenty four seven. I mean, 
Uh, yeah, we go out and we walk in the neighborhood, but um, avoiding any any contact. I I go to the grocery store once a you know once a week, uh, you know, masked and distanced and all that. Um, my wife now is back to school. That's what we're really worried about is that she's back she's back in the petri dish that is a a school, and they've got half the kids at home, half the kids in school. But you know, it's still it's it's tough. So how has all of this affected your clinics? Well, it's 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 killed them. Um, I had two clinics in January and February, one in uh, Phoenix and one in uh, Santa Clara County. And, and the one in Santa Clara County, that's when COVID was, was just starting. If you remember, there were like two cases in Washington. And then um, the weekend that I did my clinic in Santa Clara, there were two people hospitalized there um, in Campbell uh, where I did the clinic. Um, so I was like kind of brought it, you know, brought a, <laughs> brought every, every, mask and every everything I could imagine bringing with me to that clinic but then everything shut down right after that um, I had several scheduled in fact I just had one the most recent ones were in Louisville and Galveston Galveston I was actually thinking I could try to do it but nobody's confident enough to to sign up for clinics so even if I had them on the schedule people aren't ready to travel yet people aren't ready to meet in groups yet so um, that's gone um, my, one of my other jobs was uh, I was a national coach for the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and um, we had a half marathon team and a marathon team. And I was a national coach. I ever saw all the other coaches, and I had my own local team, and we travel all over doing half marathons. And um, <clears throat> that was kind of winding down a little bit. So I was actually trying to get a, a another fundraising team started with uh, the Mitochondrial Disease Foundation. Um, we were just getting the ball rolling on that, and then COVID hit. So. Um, that was supposed to be, you know, my our, our big fundraising for my son was uh, that half marathon team, and that's not going anywhere now. So it, it's it's really it's affected my clinic, it's affected my national national coaching position with the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation, and it's it's affected my ability to get this um, other team off the ground. So it's it's yeah, we've taken a hit here. <laughs> so um, you know, personally, wow. financially, also just uh, um, you know, my my funds my son's fundraising for the Mitochondrial Disease Foundation. We um, not that you asked, but we we, we have a um, we have a website, and our goal was to hit um, hundred thousand uh, dollars. Because there's really no government funding, there's there's very very little funding at all for uh, rare diseases. So we tried to raise a hundred thousand dollars, and we hit that within I think it was about nine months, and we're at about two hundred and two hundred and fifteen thousand. So the goal now is is two hundred and fifty thousand. We've got um, about seven different research projects to choose from right now. And I think around December 14th, 15th, we're going to be picking a final uh, recipient for our first grant. So the first grant's going to be a hundred thousand. And we've got, you know, I want to say we've got another $115 to, uh, to fund another grant to hopefully find a cure for what my son is afflicted with. The FDA is not doing a whole lot. I, I can't remember what the number is, but their, their total annual budget, I think it's about four million for all mitochondrial diseases, and, and nothing specific to what my my son uh, has, which is actually kind of a weird form of of mitochondrial disease. Most are uh, passed down from the mother, uh, you know, maternal maternally inherited. Um, his just kind of arises spontaneously, and they don't know why. So that would Ooh. be one thing to. Um, and the other is um, most mitochondrial diseases there's a you know there's a very small chunk of the the dna missing and in his case it's more than half of the dna is missing and in this in the cells that are affected and only is a not really a, a good word to use but only about two-thirds of his cells are affected but 
in two thirds of his mitochondria, more than 50% of the DNA is missing. So those, those cells are just not functioning at all. So about a, he's, he's working on about a third of the energy that, that most people are working on. And you said that you've received a couple good proposals already? Yeah, apparently they got about seven really good proposals in and they're, they're going to try to narrow it down to a couple for us to pick from. Yeah, that's pretty exciting, though. I mean, I'm amazed that you've raised that much money. That is really exciting. Um, persistence, luck, good friends. <laughs> um, yeah, we've been lucky. We haven't really had many huge donations. It's all been, you know, it's all been, you know, fifty dollar donations for the most part. So, we've been very lucky. So, if people would like to contribute, how can they? How can they reach you? Uh, well, he has a fundraising page through the United Mitochondrial Disease Foundation. That's uh, umdf.org slash Kevin McGovern. That can be all small letters or it could be capital C, capital M, capital G. So Kevin McGovern with the C, the M, and the G capitalized. But, but anyway, all small letters work. So it's uh, umdf.org slash Kevin McGovern. Almost any way you want to spell it. Well, spell it correctly, but any almost any way you want to capitalize it, it should work. Great. After that, let's talk about something that might be a little lighter. Uplifting. <laughs> well, I mean, what we talked about is that uh, before COVID, or before kids, I mean, not COVID, before kids, I, I was able to write my first two books literally in about a month or two, um, and with these kids it's it's just there's no time for me to sit down and write for 14 hours a day and it's then you know almost when i try to write i sit down i open up the manuscript and i say that font doesn't look right <laughs> and i go back <laughs> and, I, and i change the font and then i go again and i said well changing that font you know bumps that word onto the next page and then that puts that picture out of the way and I'll, i i just do all this formatting and don't do any real writing unless i have you know these 12 or 14 hours a day to write so finally with COVID, i had the opportunity to just sit down and do it and you know and it was a much bigger book I and mean, it's 333 pages compared to 220 or so um and it's instead of a six by nine book, it's 11 or eight and a half by 11. It's just, it's just a lot more meat in it, but, but still I got this one done in about four months of, of actual sitting down COVID writing, even with the kids. Um, you know, my, my, my wife being home from work, you know, finally enabled me to get the job done. I couldn't really train, but I <laughs> sat down, and like, you know, put together, not 14 hours, but I could put together, you know, three or four hours a day. And so what is this book called? Uh, this is The Complete Guide to Competitive Walking, Race Walking, Power Walking, Nordic Walking, and more. And the more is even um, uh, walking in triathlons. And I, I'm thinking back 10, 15, 20 years ago at my clinics, I'd have maybe one triathlete a year would come to my clinics and say, you know, I want to get through a, an Ironman and I can't, you know, I can't run anymore. Can you enable me to walk faster? <clears throat> and now, Pretty much every clinic I do, I get one or two triathletes. So I wanted to do a section on triathlon training. Uh, the thing that makes this one a lot different from, you know, let's say the complete guide to race walking, I figure there's one way to handle training schedules. It's kind of all or nothing. And, and in that book, I, you know, I, as a coach, I, I, I don't really believe in training schedules. I believe in everybody's an individual and it's, it's really hard to write a schedule for everybody. 
So that's the nothing approach. And the all approach is this one, I've got 70 different training schedules. So it's any race wow. distance from 1500 meters up to 100 miles and beyond. Um, beginner, intermediate, advanced, plus um, what I think is really interesting, if you're doing uh, the Disney Goofy Challenge or the the dump or the Goofy and yeah. go, the, the Dopey Challenge, if you want to do a half marathon one day and a marathon the next, or if you want to do a 5K and then the next day a 10K and the next day a half and then a full the day after that, you know, how do you train for that? So I've got that. I've got the, nat the National Masters where you do a 5K one day and a 10K the next day or the day after that. The Huntsman Games where it's a 1500, 3000 meter 5K, the um, World Veterans where it's a 5K, a 10K, a 20K. Yeah, how do you train for those weird <clears throat> combinations of races? So I've got all those training schedules as well. Uh, and I think that makes it a little bit different is that it, it, it's not just, and it does have plenty of that, but it's not just training for a 5K, it's training for every distance um, and every combination of distances. Wow, I could have really used that last year when I did a half marathon and a 10K back to back. And I did that on a couple of different weekends. And yep. I and I definitely did not train correctly for any one of them. <laughs> well, I think I think this book covers it. And it, you know, it's got a lot on history. It, it, it's got everything. I, I want it to be the complete guide, <laughs> as the complete guide to race walking was, but this is complete er er, complete er. -er guide to race walking and other forms of walking um and i wanted it to be really complete so it's it's not just race walking it's power walking which which is growing a lot you know now it's um it used to be a kind of a you do a 5k and they had a walk division that's what power walking was but now it's it's in the huntsman games it's in the national masters where they they actually have a power walk with power walking rules so we talk about the rules and how you know, how to how to train for the events, uh, how you know how they're organized. So you know there there are big sections on on power walking, which you know has grown a lot. Um, you know the technique, technique and order walking, how to find races, and any anything that you possibly think of. Uh, hopefully the book covers it. So what is the difference between power walking and race walking? Um, it, what you do with your knees, you know, race walking, there's that rule where you've got to straighten the knee right when the heel hits the ground until your body passes over it. In power walking, you can't come off the ground like race walking, but your knees can be slightly bent. Okay. Um, it's a little, it's a little trickier to judge because there's, there's not a defining rule like that, you know, straightened leg. Um, so you can bend your knee a little bit, you can't bend your knee a lot. So it, it asks a lot of the judges, basically it's the way things were back in the 1870s. And I talk a lot about the history, but um, there really were no rules back then. There, and there were two different kinds of walking races in the 1860s, 1870s. There were uh, go as you please races where you could do anything you wanted. You could walk, you could run, but most people figured, you know, if you, if you ran for more than a marathon, if you ran for more than four or five hours, you couldn't run anymore. And so if you're doing a, a hundred mile race or a six day race, most people walked pretty much the whole way anyway. But then as the prize money got insane, um, people started running more and more in those races. So they came up with um, another type of pedestrian race where they called it fair heel and toe. And there really were no rules. They just said, you have to be walking. And the judges judged based on what walking is, but they, um, it left a lot up to the judges to define what that what actually was. And over time they developed rules, but um, power walking takes us back a little bit back to that era where the judges, uh, or making sure you're walking, but um, the knee, it's a little more natural. You know, race walking, that straightened leg is not what most people do naturally. Maybe five, 8% of the population straighten their knees when they walk normally. 
um, most people don't. So um, once you start going faster, it becomes kind of a blurry line where fast walking is and where running is without that straightened leg. So it, it does require that the judges are really on top of things in those power walking races. Anyway, that's the difference. What, what you do with your knee. I, that was a, a roundabout way of getting to, to the point where um, power walking, you don't have to fully straighten your knee. Race walking, you do. It sounds like what most of my friends and I do anyway. I mean, we, we take in race walking clinics, including yours, but that straight knee all the time is what we were having the most difficulty with. So it sounds like we're actually doing that type of power walking. Andy, you were pretty good. um but yeah i mean a lot of people it's uh it's it's different um and as you get older you know if you have kids you you show a bunch of kids how to race walk you know 90 percent of them can do it you know immediately um older people it takes a little bit longer some people it takes you know a couple of clinics and i wouldn't be in business if (laughs) if it were easy if if every adult could just do it there, there wouldn't be a need for race walking clinics but i find that most can get it um, but, but a lot don't want to get it. A lot of people are, are better, you know, better off power walking or not better off, but they, they would prefer to power walk than to race walk. I can see that. So how does someone get the book? Uh, well, I think the best way in my opinion, because Amazon doesn't take their cut is just to go to my website. Um, it's just the easiest way is just go to my web, website, racewalking.org. And then there's going to be a tab for the store I just go in the store and there's a tab for books. You know, right now it's available through Amazon Kindle. Um, and then if you're overseas, um, you can also get a hard copy by print on de- demand through Amazon. Um, it's a little pricier, but it is, it is cheaper than having me ship it. Um, I've kind of worked everything out where it's, it's going to be about seven or eight bucks cheaper and, and definitely faster if you're in Europe, if you're in Japan, if you're in South Africa, if you if you um, get it through Amazon, um, it's going to be pricier than the book itself. Buying it from my website, but then the shipping is going to be you know it's going to be a, a lot more if I have to send it to you from here. So, if you're in the U.S., the Amazon buying the book from Amazon is outrageously expensive because it's the same price throughout. It's going to be like sixty-two bucks to buy the book in, in the U.S. from Amazon oh, only geez. because. It's, yeah, it's, it's because that makes up for the free shipping. Anyway, if you just go to my website. <laughs> Is there any way that people can get autographed copies? Uh, yeah, it's a complicated procedure calling uh, called asking me to autograph your book. <laughs> 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 I, I, think the, my fir- I think I promised my first 150 orders I would autograph, but if anybody just sends me an email and asks me to autograph it, I'll certainly do that. Well, I'll definitely make sure that the the address for the book and the um, charity are both in the show notes, so that people won't have to write frantically while we're ah, talking. <laughs> sure, I, sure, I can I can actually give you the the real address and you can put a link. I I, I didn't know you'd have that opportunity, that uh, ability. So great. Yeah. So, is there anything we have not talked about that you would like to talk about? You know what I'm doing now. You know, not not having okay. clinics to do anymore, and and having finished the book, people are still looking for help. I mean, I I, I am still coaching, uh, you know, a, a fair amount, uh, not as much as I as I'd like, <laughs> but um, I, I, I if you go to the website as well, I've got I've got links for coaching. But I I do online coaching uh, for you know, race walking, power walking, anything you want to do for beginners up to you know elite level. 
Um, and then I also do technique analysis, which is kind of what I have always preferred to do. I'm just really intrigued by technique. I'm a kind of a biomechanist at heart. So um, if you want to send a video, I, I do technique analysis as well. And it's also on my website under the coaching tab. Um, and I'm also doing more, you can send a video, but I'm also doing more kind of online live video coaching. So if you're at the track, you know, you can zoom me or FaceTime me from the track and I can look at your technique that way as well. So I had not heard of anyone doing that before. And I'm sure people who, who have had coaches for a while have, have done that with other coaches, but I just find that so cool that that can be done. I should probably advertise that more then. Maybe. <laughs> I'm going to fire my marketing person. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today, Dave. I really appreciate well, sure. it. No, this has been fun. I, I kind of miss I miss writing for Walk Magazine, but this is a nice uh, a nice way to get back get back there. For this episode's five minute cool down, I have Deb Chenault joining me. How are you, Deb? Hi, Cindy. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Since both of us have read a variety of race walking books and walking books, I thought maybe today we could talk about some of our favorites. Yes, please. Well, first of all, I just received the complete guide to competitive walking from Dave McGovern, and I think you have yours too, right? Yes. Well, what are your first impressions of the book? To be honest, when I first when I first got it, I was expecting it to be a smaller size, but looking through it, I it's a perfect size and it's just full of information. What is it? How many pages is 320 pages and what is it? Eight and a half by 11. Yeah, it's it's very um, it's very easy to read. Very easy to read. You can you can pick it up and just you know, open to a page and start reading. It's really nice. And one thing that I really like are the training schedules because they aren't just for doing a marathon or doing a half marathon or 5K. He has some that are for the back-to-back events like we've done in the past. As I told Dave in the interview, I have not trained correctly for any of those events that I did. So this will be really (laughs) helpful. Uh, this book would have been nice. However, many years ago, we did the uh, the Big Sur. Oh, yeah. Basically, the 20 miler there. Man, wow. our, our, you know what? We trained correctly for that if it had been flat and not windy. <laughs> 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 and not with the road pitched at a 45 degree angle for 18 miles. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I keep thinking about that one point where I said to you, I just want some flat. (laughs) (laughs) Getting back to the book. um, But the other thing I really like about it is Dave's sense of humor. Because he has footnotes throughout. And some of his footnotes are hysterical. Yes, it's just so different. I mean, it's so different than anything I've read before. Um, Dave McGovern's training schedule were like our Bibles when we were training for half marathons. That's what I really like about him are the training schedules, I think. 
I do too. Um, I have just received mine just a day or two ago, so I haven't had a chance to even start reading it. But like you said, I'd open to a page and, and look at it, and there is a lot of really good information in here, and I'm really looking forward to reading it. Yes, and especially at the end, he goes into those um, Disney races and charity races and how to train for those, and what, what a cool idea. Yeah, I think, it's a, I think it was well worth the wait. I, I agree. So are there any other walking books that you wanted to mention as books that you like? Well, what I really, the one that I really like um, is the Race Walk Clinic in a book by Jeff Salvage and Tim Seaman. And I think a big, a big part of this book are the great photographs. Jeff Salvage is an amazing photographer. And I think it's a lot of his, photographs but I mean it's so colorful and the photographs are nice and sharp and lots of stretches and drills and all kinds of good stuff well and what I like about the photography too is when you have Tim demonstrating something like a stretch the photographs are clear enough that you can tell exactly what he's doing instead of some books where you see the photo and it doesn't help you at all to figure out what you're doing Yes, exactly. Yes. Well, I picked that book as one of my favorites, too. And I don't think I've, when I first got it, I probably read it all the way through. But since then, I typically just open it up and look for something I need. Like if I'm having IT problems, I'll open it up and look for stretches for that. Or, um, yeah, basically that's it for stretches and for um, strength training exercises. That's what I normally and typically use it for. I had really forgotten how many great stretches were in this book. Well, and I remember from the clinic that we took from them that they did spend a lot of time on some really good stretches that I really need to get back to doing, which is why my entire body is one solid knot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm glad it's not just me. Oh, my. What I seems like I'm having trouble with lately is my uh, piriformis. And oh, yeah. I know the stretch, and I just like, you know, I should sit down and just do that piriformis stretch. And do you think I do? No. I just walk around with, oh, oh, that hurts. <laughs> oh, maybe I should stretch. Oh. <laughs> yeah, every, every time I see my chiropractor, I tell him, the next time I see you, I will have stretched. And he'll go, yeah. Right. <laughs> It's one of those things that you always mean to do, isn't it? Yeah. It's terrible. The other book that I wanted, one of the other books I wanted to talk about was Dave McGovern's Complete Guide to Marathon Walking. And the new book, I'm sure, replaces this one. But if all you want is marathon walking, this really is a, a very good book. And I used it for training for half marathons, actually. Yeah, I didn't read it all the way through because I don't, these types of books, I don't like to read all the way through, but I mean, not from cover to cover, but this is another one that I would pick up and read about tapering or um, how to eat or, so I'd pick it up and look at it when I needed help with something. Yeah, I just really liked this one too. Did you have any other books that you wanted to mention? The one that I always like just to flip through occasionally is Jeff Salvage 
has a book of photographs of Olympian athletes, and it's called Two Feet Go Race Walking. And it's just, just amazing where he, you know, gets close-up shots of their feet, and his photography is so wonderful. Oh, yeah. See how how a couple people are lifting, but of course not to the naked eye. And two feet goes race walking. I have never seen that book, and now that you're talking about it, I remember hearing about it. But I have never seen that one. I'll have to look into it. Just a little book, not too many pages, but it's really colorful, really colorful, and, and really, really interesting. Another book that I wanted to talk about is not about walking, but it's more about motivation and inspiration. And the author, Elaine Daldon, is just an amazing person. And the title is Gotta Run, Life is a Marathon, So Double Tie Your Shoes. And she ran 26.2 marathons in one year for her birthday. It's so cool. She's just an amazing person. I recommend this book for anybody. And I've also lent it to people who were feeling like they needed to find a goal and just reading about her doing all of these marathons. She's just very inspiring. I can't, I can't say enough how inspiring she is. So got to run life as a marathon. So double tie your shoes. And I know she has a website too, but right now I can't think of it. And she also has a woman's only marathon that she is director of that's in South Dakota. Um, I can't think of the name of it right now. But that would be another great thing for people to look into. And a book I really liked, it's, it's a running book. It's Dina uh, Castor's autobiography. I love called Let Your Mind Run. Even though we're not runners, it was very inspirational. She talked about, you know, her training and same things we do and hill training. And it was just unputdownable. I agree. That yeah. one was pretty awesome. Well, Deb, thank you for talking to me about books. I really appreciate your recommendations. I'll make sure to put links to all the titles and the authors in the show notes. Oh, you're welcome. This It's always fun talking to you, Cindy. The Walk Magazine podcast is copyright by Lizard Publishing. The Walk Magazine theme song, Walk With Me, was written by Gordon Lehman, recorded at Real Time Audio in Denton, Texas. Recording engineer, Eric Delagarde. Produced by Eric Delagarde and Gordon Lehman. Vocals by Whitney Wilson. Cello by Madeline Hansen. Guitar and Fender Rhodes by Gordon Lehman. Thanks, Gordon.